0: Reading is taken from Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks
1: be to God. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, which is living and active and speaks to us today. Thank you that every time we open it together, we hear from you and we learn more of who you are and your character, and we learn more about how may how we may become a little bit more like you. Pray that this evening as we look at this passage together your spirit will be speaking to all our hearts. May my words be your words and may your spirit be taking root within each and every one of us. May we leave this place transformed and having encountered you afresh may you receive our adoration again. Amen. Amen. Well, it is really good to be with you this evening. I wonder um, whether you're like me and that you like to keep up to date with what's going on in the world. You might do this by watching the news. You might have a subscription to a newspaper. You might do it um, through things like Facebook and other sort of social media. But I know that for me, I think it's really important to keep track of what's going on in the world. Lots of different reasons why this is the case. Uh, Two of them that I think stand out. Firstly, because I think it's important that we know how to pray for global situations. And I think if we never read any news, we never know what to pray for. And secondly, because I think, and this is becoming more and more apparent to me, that the only way we can really figure out how to be disciples of Jesus in the world we live now is by understanding the world that we live in. So by watching the news and reading what's going on in the world um, nationally, internationally and locally, we can begin to understand our own context as well. And I don't know about you, but the the problem I have, the thing I have, is that every time I watch the news, all I feel inside me is despair and heartache. All I think when I sit and watch the news at 10 o'clock every evening is just grief. Grief is deep within me at political tensions, at an international level or a national level, at stories of famine and of drought, abuse, racism, to pick a few all of which have likely been in the news in one form or another in the last week alone. And so amidst that grief and anger that I feel every time I tune into the news, I'm often left finding myself asking this question. Where on earth do we find hope? Where on earth, when we look at this world, broken and beautiful but falling apart at the seams, where do we find hope And I ask that question now at the start of my talk because that's really the question that's going to underpin everything that follows. It's the question that kind of is the foundation for what we're going to look at tonight. If you've been with us um, over the last few weeks, you'll know we've been looking through Romans 8. Romans 8 is one of the high points in Paul's writing. Um, It's the kind of crescendo, in a sense, of the letter to the church in Rome. We've looked so far about what it means to live free of condemnation, what it looks like to live um, free of slavery from our sin, and what it looks like to live according to the Spirit. And in tonight's passage, we're going to wrestle with this idea. What does it mean, and where do we find hope? Now, this is one of those questions, isn't it, that um, it's very easy to give the right answer or what um, someone I used to know rather rudely called the Sunday school answer. And what he meant was this, that in Sunday school, the chances are any question you get asked, if you answer it with Jesus, there's a pretty high likelihood that you're going to be somewhere along the right lines. And it's, it's like that with this, isn't it? We, we ask the question, where do you find your hope? And it's really easy and it's right, but it's really easy for us to say, oh, of course, I find my hope in Jesus. But the thing I think this passage does is it calls us deeper than that. It asks us to not just say, oh, I find my hope in Jesus. It asks us to wrestle with that. It asks us to wrestle with it in the context of suffering. And it asks us to wrestle with it in the idea of where exactly is our hope? Where do we really find it when things go wrong? Where do we really look when life takes a turn for the worst? And what we'll see is that Paul, when he does this in this letter, he doesn't just draw in humanity. He goes on this big, big cosmic thing, and he brings the whole of creation in as well in this big search for where we find our hope. But first, we need to backtrack a bit. Because I want to start by saying this. I think so much of our culture over the last 50 years And you can push that back, I think. You can go back 200 years to the Enlightenment. But so much of what we do now as a society and as a culture is all about trying to find a way to create something that we can place our hope in, that will take us out of the barrenness and the darkness of our day-to-day lives, and something gives us hope. It's a desperate attempt to place hope in things that can never do it, can never satisfy, can never succeed, but that's what we've strived for as society for such a chunk of time, to lift ourselves out, We've sought to create this kind of utopian world. There's a great cultural commentator called Mark Sayers who talks about the utopia of society, and it's the sense that we're trying to make it ourselves. We're trying to make something we can put our hope in, but it just hasn't worked. We've tried it with politics, haven't we? We've We've tried to put our faith in politics and the great idea of democratic progress, yet every time it just seems to fall down in front of our eyes, one at a time. It's not a political point. I'm not trying to make a political point score here, but it's true, isn't it? Politics once offered this hope, this dream. Yes, we can, something bigger than ourselves that we could believe in that will end inequality and injustice, but it just hasn't worked. Economics, well, I am really not an economist, Um, just ask my wife. But my read of the the capitalism movement and the kind of the world we live in now, and again, this isn't to critique a, a market system, I couldn't begin to do that, but it's designed around the sense that we can just have whatever we want, whenever we want. Amazon Prime, if I order a book now on Amazon Prime, it'll come through my door tomorrow before lunchtime. We've bought into this idea that if we can just do that, if we can just create that world, we'll be okay. It'll give us progress, security, success, and it, it will to a point. And then what happens is you throw the internet into all this as well, and suddenly we've got this idea that we can just develop a new app, and all our problems will be solved. I saw a great tweet this week, um, which I think was ironic, but I'm not entirely sure, which said... Um, I'm hoping it was ironic because it said this. It said, we all know that apps, you know, apps on our phones, we all know that apps are going to solve every problem we have. It's just a matter of time and width. width." Um, <laughs> I'm hoping it was ironic. But it, that's, that's the kind of the narrative, isn't it? We just need the next app. We just need the next bit of technology. We just need the next development software-wise, and we'll get it. We'll have this idea of hope, and it'll be perfect. There's more. I could talk about how my generation in particular and the generation below has fallen for the lie that social media will somehow make us happier relationally. But actually what it's done is it's left a generation, um, to use the words of one psychologist, who all exist alone together. And there's an epidemic of loneliness that's coming if we don't get it right soon. What about how we've put our faith in entertainment, how we go and watch films and television programs that have this bigger story that we try and place ourselves in? Or technology again, the way technology can somehow make us have something to hope in that's bigger than ourselves. And the thing is with all these things, they're not bad. I'm not trying to say that they're all bad. There is good in them, and particularly things like technology and medical advancements, communication advancements, better trading. There are good things that have come out of all these these areas, these fields, and they should rightly be celebrated. But when it comes to their ability to give us hope, a hope that will will stand the test of suffering, none of them will ever do the job. And so what that does is it leaves us living in a culture that's looking for what one commentator has called a meta story, a kind of big picture story within which we're trying to place our individual story, my life story, where does it fit, what, what does it fit into that's going to give me hope To put it another way, we're all looking for something to put hope in, we just don't know where to find it. Or to put it like this, Viktor Frankl was an Austrian psychologist who survived the Holocaust, and on his release, he wrote a book, and he said this. He said, He who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. He who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. This is from a guy who survived the Holocaust. So where's our hope? What's our why that enables us to bear with almost any how? That's what Paul answers tonight. That's what he's getting at in this bit of Romans 8. He's coming to that, he's getting there, he's building his point, and he's coming to look at it from this perspective. And when it comes to finding the thing to put our hope in, Paul is going to tell us what the answer is, and it's a great answer. Of course it is. To understand it properly, we need to nip back a little bit to verse 17. So if you've got your Bibles, Romans 8 verse 17, just before where the reading started tonight, says this, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We share in his sufferings, in Christ's sufferings, in order that we also may share in his glory. And we kind of have to start here with that one verse back from where um, the passage that was set for tonight is because we need to get what Paul is saying here. He's saying that followers of Christ, disciples of Christ, everyone in the world, he's saying, but particularly disciples of Christ, we are to expect Suffering. It's not up for debate in Paul's world. It's not something that you may or may not experience depending on how lucky you might be. Suffering is part of the human condition. It's part of the world we live in. Paul recognizes that. And Paul is really realistic about what that looks like. And we need to be too, right? Life is full of suffering, of frustration, of groaning. Words that Paul uses in the passage tonight. I think we all have somewhere deep, deep within us a longing for that pain to end. That's why when we watch the news, we grieve. That's why suffering hurts when it happens to us. We all groan with the ache of unfulfilled desire, or as, as Carl Rayner beautifully put it, in this life, all of our symphonies remain unfinished. In this life, all of our symphonies remain Unfinished. This is the reality, friends, of the human condition. This is what it is like living in this time between the times, the time between the the death and resurrection of Jesus, and then his calling us home. And we're in this middle bit, the time between the times, and in this life our symphonies will remain unfinished. And this is the thing that we've been trying to fix. This is the thing that humanity has been trying and trying and trying and investing and investing and investing in an attempt to fix. And it hasn't worked. And we know, don't we, that it it will never work either. And Paul gets this, Paul knows, and this is what he's trying to say here, Paul knows that the biggest problem that we face is human suffering, individual human suffering. That's not to say that other forms of suffering aren't important, they are elsewhere in his writings. Paul recognizes that. But to put a kind of 21st century spin on it, Paul gets the fact that so many people want to save the world, and yes, the world needs saving, but he knows that before we can go and save the world, we ourselves have to be saved first. The human heart needs transformation, and only transformation that can come through Jesus of Nazareth. Paul gets this. It's happening here in 2018. It's happening 2,000 years ago. That's why he writes this in the letter to the church in Rome. And Paul's kind of posing this question. Is it worth it? If suffering is inevitable, if we're going to suffer, if there's nothing we can do to avoid it, and if actually by becoming a disciple of Jesus we enter into his suffering, is it, is it really worth it? Can this really be where we find our hope? For Paul... It's a simple answer. It's 100% yes. Is it worth it? Yes. Look with me at verse 18 where he writes this. I consider that our present sufferings, sufferings we encounter um, in life, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. They are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It doesn't get more comprehensive Than that, Paul knows, he understands, he gets, and he's trying to tell us that if we can even begin to comprehend the tiniest bit about where, as followers of Jesus, we're going, where we're going to go in the future, and we'll get to that bit in a minute, if we can even begin to get our heads around that, around the glory that is to be revealed for those who are children of God, then the present pain and suffering that we encounter, it doesn't come anywhere close. Now, that might sound, and it can sound, very trite, and very baseless, if we don't remind ourselves briefly of the suffering Paul himself went through in his life. So here's what he writes. You don't need to turn to it, but this is what he says in 2 Corinthians. So this is Paul's own account. Five times, he says, I've received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I've been shipwrecked, a night and a day I've been adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toiling and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul doesn't write this um, to get likes on Facebook to make himself look like a kind of tough guy. Paul writes this because it's connected to the idea that he's talking about tonight. When Paul talks about our present suffering, he talks from his own experience. He has been there, and if we were to sit with him around the table, he would show us the scars of the 40 lashings less one. And yet, despite that, despite everything he lists in his life, despite all that suffering and pain, he's still able to say that the present suffering is not worth comparing to the future glory we have in Christ It's important to note that what he's not doing is belittling suffering. He's not underestimating the power and the pain of suffering on earth. That is not what Paul is doing and that is not what we should do. We recognize, don't we, we live in a broken and a fallen world. And as a consequence of that, we experience suffering. We have to name that and accept that and be realistic about that. For some of us, it's physical suffering. For others, it's mental or emotional. It might look like persecution. It might look like dreams that we know are of God but just haven't come to fulfillment. Suffering is a reality. We need to push back against it in prayer and recognize it as part of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And yet, Paul is still able to say with confidence and despite his suffering that our present sufferings are not worth comparing How is he able to do this? How is Paul able to look beyond this life to the life to come with such hope? And perhaps more to the point for us, what is there in any of this that that gives us comfort and hope? What is it that enables us to move on from saying, well, bully for you, Paul, that was great, but it doesn't work like that for me? How can we leave thinking this is incredible news for us? Paul is a a good writer, he's a good author, and he's been building up to this. And if you, um, I'd recommend if you've got an hour, a couple of hours, to, to read Romans through because you'll see he's building up to this point. We've kind of picked it up here in this moment, but what he's doing is building and building and building, and this is his crescendo point. And the whole of the letters of the church in Rome is kind of coming and building to this moment, and what he's saying is the high point of all of this, the high point, the thing that gives us hope, the thing that allows me to say all of this despite my suffering, the thing that I can look forward to more than anything else that will give me hope and security is resurrection. The hope for the world is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and we'll see this in a second, it's the promised future resurrection for those who believe in him. Jump to um, verse 23 with me. Actually, I might start reading from verse 22, Romans eight twenty-two. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Twenty-three. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly. This is what we're doing. This, this is the kind of unfinished symphony thing. We wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. That, that, for Paul, this is resurrection language. We can read over it and skim over it and not quite get it, but this is resurrection language for Paul. And in this case, not the resurrection of Christ, but the resurrection that will one day happen to all of Jesus' followers. What he's saying is we will be raised to glory from the dead by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the future glory Paul places his hope in. And it's bigger than just us. If you were listening to the reading, you'll have picked up because it's bigger than not just us. It's creation as well. This is the whole renewal of all creation. The coming glory to be revealed in and through us is so stunning, so blindingly good and beautiful and of God that it will somehow envelop the whole of creation and glorify that along with us as well. It's difficult for us to get our heads around that, particularly because as a a culture we've split ourselves away from creation in a quite drastic way. We don't have the same understanding that Paul would have done. But what he's saying is just as we have that aching deep within us, that sense of an unfinished symphony deep within us, longing for the glory of God, creation has all of that as well. As he says in verse 20, creation has been subjected to frustration since the fall. The world around us, Paul says, is not as it should be. Things don't work like they were meant to work. Things aren't as beautiful as they were meant to be. I don't know if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon or seen the Northern Lights or done one of those things that's kind of touted as the most incredible thing you can do on planet Earth. But just imagine for a moment that what Paul is saying is actually those things we see, those things we experience, they're just a tiny glimpse of what they actually were designed to be like. Creation is in bondage and in decay, Paul says. It's stuck in this cycle of, of death, everything we know Wears down and dies. That's, that's the reality of life. That's the suffering of life. Everything we know eventually wears down and dies. Life is brought into being in this world through the pain of childbirth. It ends with the pain of death. Creation is not working as it should be working. And yet, the last word is not death. The last word is resurrection. Verse 21 is a promise of fulfillment. It's a promise for creation and for us. It's a promise that will break those chains of death and decay that bind creation, and it will bring all of creation, and it will bring us, Jesus' followers, into an incredible new glory. It'll be a world where instead of grief, we experience celebration, where instead of pain, we experience joy. Instead of death, life. Instead of despair, hope. The question, friends, of hope, where we find our hope, isn't a new one. It's not new for us, We've just found a new way to try and get around it. It's a question humanity has wrestled with since the beginning. Paul is wrestling with it here. He is urging the church in Rome and urging us today through this letter to look beyond those things that we've placed our hope in. They're not bad of themselves, but we can't place our hope in them. We're looking beyond those things, and we're looking to hope in the one who can only offer true hope. Remember that um, Viktor Frankl quote he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. That's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to give us the why to live for. The why is the resurrection of Jesus and the future of glory in our own resurrection that is to come. That's the why he gives us to live for. And he recognizes that that doesn't take away suffering, that doesn't mitigate suffering, that doesn't mean we just brush suffering off as something that happens and it's just we should just get over it. He doesn't say that. But he does say that what's coming for us in the future, where we're headed, where we're going, is so much better. So much better. And in a world starved with hope, in a world where when we tune into the news every evening, we're met with grief and anger and despair, surely this is the best news we have to share. Because it's news that doesn't look to sweep the brokenness under the carpet. It doesn't look to just pretend it's going to be okay if we can get the right app do the right thing with our economy, get the right politicians. It recognizes that we can do good in those areas and we should do good and as Christians we should look to do better in those areas but it also says don't put your hope in them, put your hope in them the one who is above and beyond all things because it's a hope that transcends all of this life. It's a hope that is eternal, leading us to glory beyond measure as we, Jesus' followers, are raised to life in him. It's a hope that says one day things will be as they were intended to be It won't be a broken world anymore. It'll be a world working the way God intended it to. It'll be a world where we are raised with Christ, seeing how we were intended to live, walking alongside our Creator, delighting in His love for each and every one of us. The title on tonight's talk was, um, Is There More Than This? The answer has to be, absolutely, there is more than this. There is so much more than the pain and the brokenness of the world around us. There is more than the false hope that's offered by our culture. There is more than the frustrated creation we live in bound by death and decay. There is hope in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. There is hope because, as Paul says, we eagerly wait for the redemption of our own bodies and of all creation. Friends, in Jesus, we find a hope that will never let us down, that will never succumb to death or decay, because as Peter says in his sermon in the book of Acts, it was impossible for death to hold him down. In Jesus, all of our symphonies become finished. All of our symphonies become finished into one beautiful, glorious piece of music, so beyond our understanding that it it can only go to unite itself with the song of heaven that is being sung, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Jesus is where we find our hope. Jesus is where we look when the storms of life threaten to overwhelm us. Jesus is where we turn when we recognize creation is groaning in frustration and it is just not working properly, and it pains us to see that. We turn to Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because of his death on the cross, he made a way and opened his arms of love upon the cross to open the gate of eternal glory. He is the anchor For our soul. He is the firm foundation and He is secure. He is our hope. And that's what Paul is saying in this passage. Yes, suffering. We don't delight in suffering. We push back against suffering. We pray for suffering. We grieve through suffering. But we hope in something greater. We hope in something beyond the suffering of this world. We hope in the person and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And if we hope in that, then our present sufferings are not worth comparing because where we are going is so much greater, so much more beautiful, so much more incredible. It really is the place where all the symphonies of our lives become finished and they become finished in God the Father through the sacrifice of the Son and by the work of the Spirit. That's our hope. That's where we look. That's where we turn. Let's pray. Father, we thank you from the depths of who we are for the hope that is given to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. I pray now as we wait on you, as we sit for a couple of moments in silence, that your spirit would stir in our hearts and speak to us. Pray that as we silently open ourselves up to you, take down the barriers and just let ourselves sit in your presence, you begin to whisper in our ear. You begin to speak to us. Words of hope, words of comfort, words of resurrection. Maybe in the silence you you simply want to say to God, God, I put my hope in you. Maybe the first time you've done that, it may be the thousandth time you've done that. But it's a great place to start by saying, God, I put my hope not in anything but you. Might be you want to give to God those unfinished symphonies in your life, those deep longings, those deep aches, frustrations, anger, hurt, suffering. You might want to just, in your head, visualize placing that at the foot of the cross. as you do that you recognize that while our symphonies may remain unfinished here you catch a little glimpse of the song of heaven the perfect finished symphony holy 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 is the lord god almighty